Friends, I just want to reassure you at this point that we will be having a Bible reading. Um, we haven't forgotten. It's just, it's better today, we think, to run the Bible reading partway through the sermon. So um, don't panic. Okay, well, we trust our young people have fun and enjoy and learn something of God's will for them today. So today we're starting a series um, which we're... Um, today I'm, well, yes, this references after the exile. I'm going to read from Ezra 1 in a few minutes. And um, for some of you, you might be thinking, exile, uh, not really quite sure what's going on here. So want to give you a bit of a kind of overview of the Bible in order to understand again where ex- the exile and after the exile happens. Um, so that's what we're starting with today. Right, so when you open your Bible, you find that it starts with four words. Which are the first four words? Anybody know? In the beginning, God. Uh, and so that's how our Bibles start. That's how we manage to uh, begin to talk about um, things. And we have to recognize in all this that God was before. Before there was time, God was uh, and God in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in terms of pre-existent, pre-eminent uh, trinity, um, we, we recognize that. So, and then uh, in the beginning, God, Genesis 1, 2, 3, uh, we have um, the creation and then the fall. And I'm hoping that will come up on the screen any moment now. Uh, in the beginning, God, and then um, the creation and the fall. And then after that, we get a reference to what you might call the patriarchs. Um, and remember Jesus referenced back to them and said, you know, why is it that God can say that I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Um, God's not the God of the dead, but the living, which has an interesting question about how they, where they are today. But anyway, let's, let's keep going. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were part of the, the patriarchs, the, the, uh, pater, the, the fathers, the arcs, the old, the old fathers, um, the, the, the originators, as it were, of faith. Um, God called Abraham out from his, where he was living and took him to the land that was later to become the promised land. Uh, when it gets to Jacob, Jacob became the father of the 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, and by the end of Genesis, we find those 12 tribes uh, in, settled in Egypt. And then after 400 years... So a new king arises in Egypt who doesn't understand what Joseph, uh, as in Jacob's son, Joseph did for the people and how that worked. And so enters a new phase of, of that history of God with his people, uh, in, with Moses. Uh, and Moses, of course, brings Passover uh, and that whole sense of escaping from slavery in Egypt. Uh, we've referenced Passover because we want to talk about the Passover lamb and the fact that the lamb was slain and the door, blood went on the doorposts so that, and, and those doorposts where the blood's lamb was didn't have a visitation from the angel of death. So the lamb died so that the people of God, people of Israel who lived in those houses would live. Um, with the Passover comes that, then the exodus, the exiting from Egypt, and then they wander in the wilderness for 40 years because they've been, um, just because, well, because they've been, they've rebelled again against God, and God got a bit cross with them and said, okay, once this generation has died, then we will let you enter into the promised land. 
uh, and the promised land um, entered, they entered under uh, not Moses, but his successor. Um, and my brain's gone blank. I know who it is, really. Um, but after, um, so initially they were ruled uh, as people by judges. Then they asked for a king. God was very cross about them wanting a king and said, well, hang on a minute, they've rejected me when they want a king. Uh, but anyway, they, God gave everybody a king. There was King Saul, then there was David. Then after a bit, we had separated kingdoms. So you had Israel in the north and Judah in the south. Ten tribes, two tribes. Uh, and... The history after that is something of um, good king, bad king, good king, bad king. Good king brings people towards uh, faith and, and right living with God. Bad kings allow things to go to pot, basically. And it's a succession of good versus bad, good, then bad, then good. And sometimes you get two or three of the same in, in, in a row. But it's, it's generally that sense of, uh, of how things go. And after a bit we end up with that recognition that, frankly, the rebellion of the people is sufficient that God decides that he will allow the lands to be conquered again. Uh, And the northern kingdom is conquered by the Assyrians in um, 721 BC, and um, their history, effectively, at that point, comes to an end. There's no sense of regathering those people Afterwards, whereas for the the people of Judah, they existed for a bit longer, and around 598 under um, Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians, they took over the land of Judah, and um, so they were taken into exile as well. And then 70 years later, there is a return under the next sort of grand rulers of the ancient Near East, otherwise known as the Persians, and they allow a return from exile to the promised land. That's where we get this passage. Ezra 1 speaks of that return from exile into the promised land. That's all very well, but what happens after this? So let's move on. After this, we see, yes, that sense of that restoration of the people to the promised land, that restoration of worship and so on and so on. And then um, you you get some more um, kind of Old Testament teaching. You get some of the letters of the the, the prophets, the, the the record of the prophecies that happened around that time of returning to the land and afterwards places people like Daniel become some of the later things that were written but clearly there's about a 400 year gap between the end of the Old Testament and the opening of the New so from Malachi to Matthew uh, in that sense as you turn your pages of your Bible and we see that in the New Testament inevitably Jesus Uh, Jesus and his incarnation, so that's Christmas, his birth. Um, We see Jesus in terms of miracles, in terms of teaching, death, resurrection, ascension. And God very clearly bringing into effect his plan of salvation for us all, for all who accept it. Um, The next really big thing, theologically as it were, that happens is Pentecost, uh, that sense of God pouring out his spirit on his people on his believers Uh, we see in the new testament something of the gospel the good news being told out not just to jews but to gentiles and out to the ends of the at least known world at the time in terms of history we then fit next we are somewhere in there in uh, after 
at this point, because actually in terms of what we read in the Bible, what happens is at the end of the Bible is still to come in terms of the book of Revelation, in terms of that sense of the second coming of Jesus, that reminder that actually this world will be wound up, there will be a judgment day, there will be that day when the book of life is opened and all those whose names are in the book of life will spend eternity with God in heaven. So um, there you go, sweep of whole scripture in what was that? Five minutes. Let's come back to uh, what I talked about earlier, that actually we are on the, on the start of a new sermon series. So let's show you um, what's going to happen over the next six weeks of, of sermons. We're going to look at different topics, all under the heading of a story of restoration. So today we're talking about restoring a community, so a community coming home. Next week we're talking about restoring a worship, restoring of worship, sorry, and and the restoring of the temple. Uh, the week after we're going to talk about restoring the people in the sense of um, that call to right living, that call uh, for them to put away their foreign um, partnerships that there had been over the years uh, and to be be purified. Um, Nehemiah um, brings in the, the rule of law, restoring the word of God, and then restoring leadership becomes the topics that we're going to look at um, towards the end of our series. And those of you who, who are calendar alert will realize that that takes us to the end of February, and March the 1st is Ash Wednesday, so March the 5th, um, the, which will be the week after that, will, be, um, will happen in Lent. And so... Um, We'll do something different in Lent. I'll come to that in a minute. Um, so that's what we're looking at for the next few weeks. So notice again those headlines, those topics that we're talking about restoring community, restoring worship, re- restoring something of place, of people, of following God's ways, of leadership. And then notice actually that what is happening to us as a community There's lots going on, and by the end of this calendar year, it will feel and look quite different. So let me explain. You already know, hopefully if you've been here recently, that on February the 5th, and apologies if it's still wrong, on says February the 6th, but anyway, in two weeks' time, we will recombine to be one morning service uh, at 10 a.m., and that is confirmed as a timing at 10 a.m., for all sorts of reasons, um, which I won't bore you with this morning, but we are going to recombine in two weeks' time across the, the, the one service across the morning. Um, come Lent, we are planning to look at um, a thing called Transform Life. It's written by a chap called Dave Smith. For those of you who read the 40 Days with Jesus book last, after Easter it was, um, that was 40 Days with the Resurrected Jesus. This is 50 Days Um, called Transform Life, subtitled Discovering Our Identity, Belonging and Purpose, takes us through Ephesians chapters 1, 2 and 3. So in a few weeks there will be copies of this for everybody to take away and then we shall um, offer sermons um, that that kind of pick up on each one topic, the the topic of each week. Um, And the encouragement, of course, is to read it. (coughs) Uh, That's the Lent course, nothing... Uh, yeah, yeah, but I think that would be quite a helpful course for us. After Easter, we will need to re-time um, 
and perhaps relaunch our Sunday evening service. I'll explain why. It's because the week after Easter, we're going to launch Waldersleid Sings. And notice it comes with an exclamation mark. That's how we're saying it and speaking about it. Um, It's a community choir which will uh, be a no-audition choir that will sing pop and rock songs and will gather and worship, uh, not, not worship, will gather in here on a Sunday night. Uh, the plan is to gather at 7 o'clock, start at half past 7, sing and rehearse through till 9 o'clock. So as you can imagine, we need to rethink how our Sunday evening service works uh, because starting in here at half past 6 and starting something else in here at 7 o'clock doesn't really work. So, uh, but equally, actually it's good in that it will give us an opportunity to rethink the focus and the vision and the purpose for Sunday night services, Sunday late afternoon services perhaps. Um, and the Waldersleid Sings, the community choir, will give opportunity for lots and lots of people to discover, well, community. It is partly about building community in this area. And also it's partly about building friendships. So that there's some of us that are involved in it, but not swamped by churchy types um, that sing. And I think it's, it's, it's going to be really, really good. It's going to work as um, 10-week terms, so three blobs of 10 weeks across a year. And um, April 23rd will take us through to the beginning of the summer holidays. That's, that's kind of how that works for the first 10 weeks. Some of you will have been alert enough to realize that we're also beginning to talk about a church plant, so a, enabling a group of people to move to St. John's in Chatham, St. John's Railway Street. Um, it's only question mark autumn at the moment because it's still completely unknown how that will work. Um, there are some pointers along the way. We have interviews for a potentially new uh, missional what are we calling it, leader of the new worshipping community uh, on March the 9th, I think it is. If those interviews are successful, then we'll be able to tell you who that is. Then a few months later, they'll be able to move into the area. Then they'll begin to build friendships and relationships. And where at the moment we've said to all of you, please pray about whether God might be leading you to St. John's. Frankly, I recognize that for many of us, that will be much more concrete once we know and can see and visualize the leader and see some of the changes physically that will happen to the building. So potentially sometime in the autumn, um, a group of people from here will begin to worship at St. John's as a new worshiping community. And um, that's really quite exciting. The other big stuff that's happening um, that, that, that could impact us as an area quite significantly is that on Tuesday this week, we, we as in a hundred church leaders, met with J. John. J. John's this um, Greek evangelist. He's an evangelist. He happens to be Greek. Um, uh, many of you will know from years past. And this year, J. John uh, and many of the churches in London have committed to taking over the Emirates Stadium in Islington for one afternoon. They're calling it Just One. Uh, implication being, come for just one afternoon to hear just one message, the gospel, and bring just one friend with you. One of the questions about that is, 
that's uh, a stadium that seats 80,000 people. So we're look- they are looking in London for 40,000 Christians each to bring a friend. We have an option in this region to say, let's take over Priestfield Stadium. 12,000 people, 12,000 seater, 12 to 14,000, depending on whether you're allowed to put seats on the pitch or not. Um, And that looks like that might well happen in June 2018. It's 18 months from now. But to run up to that, there's talk of taking over the Priestfield Stadium also for a carol service. You know, let's give all the money to charity that, for the tickets, ticket sales and um, get the Salvation Army brass band and put J. John on the pitch and um, see how many people choose to buy into that. But before that, there's talk of, well, if we're going to encourage thousands of Christians to have the confidence to bring a friend, then many of those same thousands of Christians need to have the same, have, have some kind of confidence in who J. John is and in what it's going to be like. And so the talk is of an evening, I think an evening, of training, encouragement, of basically seeing who J. John is, that'll be for 4,000 Christians in September. Oh, and um, just so happened that the chaps from KICC at Buckmore Park, who have a 4,000-seater stadium, were there and kind of, without really consulting the senior pastor, seemed to think that maybe they could possibly host such an event. So um, that whole sense of outreach as a region is another opportunity that's coming our way. And clearly there are other opportunities too. There are other challenges along the way. Uh, You know, for example, uh, somewhere down the line here, Dale's going to be ordained as a priest and um, that will happen inevitably. And yes, inevitably. I just need to write the right reference in a few months' time. Um, But, you know, that's the highlights of some of what we're going to be doing in the next few months. And notice, as we do this, as we go into this sermon series, frankly, this stuff about restoring community, worship, place, people, restoring, following God's ways, and, and leadership, become topics that you could possibly map to some of these events. So I think this is good timing uh, even though this is a, a sermon series that we planned last October before, frankly, most of this was known. God is good. All the time. Yes, you are awake. That's good. Go on then. Try it again. God is good. And all the time. Yeah, you are awake. That's good. Great. Okay, so let's, let's focus back in again on Ezra. And uh, the next um, image that you'll get is probably way too small for anybody to think they're going to read. So let's have a look at it anyway. Um, it is about that. There we go. Uh, it's for the geeks amongst you. You get a list of foreign kings, the dates they lived, the things they did, the scriptures that reference it, and um, uh, the Old Testament books that the timeline covers. Um, 
The thing to notice in this... Uh, let's move on. I'll tell you the thing to notice in the next one. This next one focuses in on Ezra. And um, it runs from left to right across the book of Ezra. And the first six chapters of Ezra don't even name check Ezra himself. So don't think when you're reading the first six chapters of Ezra, it's about what happened under the leadership of Ezra. It's what happened under the leadership of this chap, Zerubbabel. 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 Zed. Okay? Under the leadership of Zed, from chapter 1 to chapter 6. Chapter 7 of Ezra, Ezra actually gets a name check. There's also a massive time difference between the two. Um, this talks about covering 22 years from 538 to 516 BC, whereas the chapter 7 opens at 458, which is another 50-odd years further down the line. So even though it's one book, don't think we're talking about contiguous years, particularly when you go from chapter 6 to chapter 7. Chapter six, chapters 1 to 6 is all about the first return for exile, which involved around about 50,000 people. The second return under Ezra comes with another 2,000 or so people. And having said that, we're going to hear how that first return happened. And Dot is all set to read us Ezra chapter 1. Cyrus helps the exiles to return. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and also to put it into writing. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any of his people among you may go up to Jerusalem in Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem, and may their God be with them. And in any locality where survivors may now be living, the people are to provide them with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with free will offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem. Then the family heads of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and Levites, everyone whose heart God had moved, prepared to go up and build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. All their neighbors assisted them with articles of silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with valuable gifts, in addition to all the free will offerings. Moreover, King Cyrus brought out the articles belonging to the temple of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and had placed in the temple of his God. Cyrus, king of Persia, had them brought, out, brought by Mithradath, the treasurer, who counted them out to Jeshubah, the prince of Judah. This was the inventory. Gold dishes, 30. Silver dishes, 1,000. Silver pans, 29. Gold bowls, 30. Matching silver bowls, 410. Any articles, 1,000. In all, there were 5,400 articles of gold and silver, 
Sheshbazar brought all these things along with the exiles when they came up from Babylon to Jerusalem. Thank you, Dot. So, that was chapter one. Chapter two lists the names and the numbers of people um, that were involved in the movement of uh, back to um, Jerusalem, uh, back to back to Judah, and um, concludes that there was um, uh, forty-two thousand people uh, besides their seven thousand. 337 male and female slaves and also 200 male and female singers and there were so many horses and mules and camels and donkeys and, and they all then contributed to the rebuilding of the temple. And we'll look at the temple stuff next week as well as um, whatever else we do next week. So this week, Ezra 1 then. And it's worth noticing... the timing in all this. That God had said there would be 70 years that they would be in exile. That God so organized it that rule moved from the Babylonians to the Persians in the 70th year. That the Persians came with a different way of dealing with their conquered peoples. As in the Babylonians went, hey, we're going to take you all into slavery Whereas the Persians went, no, 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 go home and, and you know, long live and prosper type stuff. Um, but, you know, make sure you send us your taxes. It was much more of a kind of gentle oversight. And you could kind of read all this in terms of political changes in the ancient Near East. A bit like the kind of handover from Barack to Trump, maybe. Maybe not. Um, But it's worth noticing the way Cyrus references himself. Verse 2 says it, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me, that is Cyrus, all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Now, there's a certain sense of humility here. There's a certain sense of understanding that these people that, Cyrus has inherited that are in captivity actually serve the living God. That the God they serve has power and authority. And so he, he echoes that sense, uh, he, he has a real sense of humility, of understanding a little bit of who God is and what God is calling him, Cyrus, to do, which is to allow the people to go back home. And it's worth noticing that the previous book in the Old Testament, that is two chronicles, ends with a massive overview of what happened in terms of those 70 years before this, and then leads into Cyrus's letter, and that's going to come up there. So this, let me read you, this is 2 Chronicles 36, um, and I've, I've cut it down a bit just for brevity really. Nebuchadnezzar carried to Babylon all the articles from the temple of God, They set fire to God's temple and broke down the wall of Jerusalem. He carried into exile to Babylon the remnant. The land enjoyed its Sabbath rest until the 70 years were completed in fulfillment of the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah. 
in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord moved the heart of the king of Persia to make, the procl- make a proclamation. And then it quotes the same proclamation as we have just had in the next book, on the next page. So the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of earth. He's appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem, in Judah, and his people, and any of his people among you may go up and may, be, may the Lord their God be with them. It is a massive change. It's a massive change that, as this says, Jeremiah, the prophet, predicted, as in the word God spoke through Jeremiah to say, there's going to be 70 years. And classically and, and famously, that comes most obviously in Jeremiah's letter to the exiles when they first went to Babylon. Um, and it's uh, Jeremiah 29, and it's coming up here. And it reads like this. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you Um, to bring you back to this place for I know the plans I have for you declares the Lord plans to prosper you not to harm you plans to give you hope and a future then you will call on me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart I will be found by you declares the Lord and will bring you back from captivity I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you declares the Lord and I will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile Now, the midst of that passage has a a verse that lots of people seem to be quite keen to quote. I know the plans I have for you to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope in the future. Well, that's true. But notice in this context, those plans were not fulfilled for 70 years. Notice in this context that those plans meant that for 70 years they lived in slavery in a foreign land. So when you quote this at somebody, remember its original context, that frankly, it's not about next week there's going to be change. It's about actually there's pain and anguish for the next 70 years. And then, and then what? You'll have a change of heart. You'll seek me and find me. You'll be repentant. And then we'll find God. So use the verse sparingly, friends, please. Because it, it's in context. It's quite a challenging verse. But let me not get stuck there. I think that we are intended to find a really strong parallel of leaving Babylon to come home, of the parallel with leaving Egypt to go into the wilderness. They are both about escaping slavery. They are both about a move to the promised land. And frankly, you read stuff like Ezra 1, uh, 6, which reads, all their neighbors assisted them with articles of silver and gold, with goods and livestock, with all the valuable gifts. Uh, And you compare that with Exodus 12, where the Israelites ask for articles of silver and gold and for clothing, uh, and so they plundered the Egyptians of their wealth. And there is a real sense that this is the same repeating itself. So much so that many people talk of the return from exile as the second exodus. 
And I wonder whether that helps us in terms of how we understand this for today. Because we could easily get bogged down in the numbers or in the politics of Cyrus and why he um, chose to go down this route. And I think it's worth remembering kind of two big things. One is to say that God still keeps his promises. He said he'd do it, he did it. The second thing, I think, is that sense that God is God of second chances. That actually, you know, it's a kind of odd situation, isn't it? Where God says to the people, here's your promised land, look after it. And then they rebel so much that he goes, actually, frankly, you need to learn a lesson. So we're going to evict you from that land. But then he lets them back in again. And they restore the temple and the worship and so on. And, and it's actually the sense of God is a God of second chances. And I think that's probably why there's parallels with the first exodus. Because actually this is another round of escaping from slavery to the freedom of life with God. And so perhaps in our own lives, even when we've messed up so much after becoming a follower of Jesus, that it feels like we're in an exile situation. We need to remember that God knows us, that God does have a plan for us, and that God does not ultimately reject us, but works to bring us back, to restore us in terms of our relationship with him, in terms of our relationship with the community. And I think that's why today we we gave it a title of Restoring a Community. Because 49, 50,000 people responded to that offer of return to the land. But notice that some didn't. Otherwise, there wouldn't have been any left to come back a second time or the third time, third round of return. But many responded to that offer of return to the land, to return to the worship of God, uh, more of which we'll hear about next week. And I just wonder whether actually there is a calling for some of us to say, actually, we need to return to the Lord, to repent of our sins, to gather again with your brethren, to be restored, which is why I want to say that God is still in the restoration business. Because that's who he is. That's the kind of God that we serve. That whenever, even though we feel like we've messed up, as it says, as Paul writes, you know, actually there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God. Not angels, not demons, not things above or things below. There's nothing that can separate us from God's love. So let's let's do what we need to do to be restored to him, to each other, to worship. Because that's what God's about. He's still in that restoration business. Now, I want to pray, but I promised Steve I wouldn't because I want to give him the opportunity to lead us onwards from here. But um, there we go. Over to Steve.